Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I'm your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I have with me Martin the Super Duper Willis. Hello. <laughs> Super Duper. Wow. That's cute. I always want to do that whole thing. I forget yeah. who used to do that. Yeah. I think that you've done uh done it a couple times on various levels, but that was a that was like your most all in. I was uh, all in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You I even it sounded like you even directed your voice off mic because it was just going to be did. such a large yeah. wow you're very observant mm-hmm. well yeah yeah that's what it did well, it was great yeah. thank you very much for them <laughs> so all right i have an extremely exciting show today now i gotta let people know the audio is a little eh, and uh, you know it's not like this right here because um and you'll attest to this my guest is george knapp who is very very difficult to get Yes, I can attest. Yeah, and, and uh, so it's just that he's a really, really busy guy. And so mm-hmm. we batted around sometimes. And uh, I, in fact, even though I talk to him periodically uh, via email, you know, it's quick hits of information back and forth. And I rarely ever hit him up for stuff like this because I don't. I know he's too busy. But I, they're promoting the new Skinwalker documentary, and I know he wanted to uh, do this. So. We were able to figure out a time, but it was while I was in the middle of stuff at uh, the Devil's Tower UFO Rendezvous this past Mm. weekend. So I had to kind of go excuse myself, run out, find a little spot in the corner, give him a call, do this um, interview via my phone. And it's a phone recording, so both of us sound like we're on a phone. But the content of this interview is friggin' amazing. I learned so much. He was opening up and sharing more details than I've ever heard him share before. And you'll hear, wow. and I think people listening will even be like, wow, I can't believe he's, he's sharing this stuff. Um, you know, because uh, usually he's very careful with information. Not that he's not careful here, but he really opened up, which was great. So this is wow. one of my all-time favorite interviews ever, actually. I bet. I bet. I've wanted, like you mentioned, how hard he is to get. And he is gracious enough to at least reply when I um, when I write him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is always, he's just super busy. He yeah. just said, I'm already working 60 hours a week. I just don't know if I can do it. And, you know, get back to me in the fall. Well, that's been three years now. Mm. Wow. <laughs> He'll say, get back to me in, you know, so many months. And, yeah. And I, I put it on my calendar and get back to him, but he's just a busy guy. Yeah. So I'm just, I gotta say, I'm just a little bit jealous, I have to say. Yeah, well, I've yeah. been jealous of your guests, so <laughs> it's we get to bat that back and forth and be jealous of each other. Because you got Steve Justice, right? Wasn't I did. It, oh, it wasn't Steve Justice. Who was it? No. It was another one of those guys. Uh, I can't oh. remember. Oh, you're talking about Mellon? Chris Mellon? Oh, yes, oh. you got Chris Mellon. Yeah. Yeah, that was a real good one. Uh, who, of course, is part of To the Stars Academy, 
um, and there's this whole government uh, paranormal investigation aspect to Skinwalker, and really the guy who is releasing the best um, up-to-date information on this whole government UFO slash paranormal program is George Knapp. So uh, that's why this uh, interview is so important as well, because we do discuss quite a bit about uh, the government involvement with Skinwalker and how it all started. And you'll hear in the interview, I don't want to give any spoilers yet, that it's really remarkable what happened uh, and how Harry Reid first got involved with Bigelow uh, and then how... You know, all of them got involved with the Skinwalker and, and then government program. So really important information here. And I think it's new information that hasn't been revealed yet as far as the entire timeline. So very exciting. Now, now let me ask you this. When when George um, co-wrote that book, mm-hmm. um, did, did he at that time know that the government had involvement, but he couldn't talk about it? I believe so. Mm. Yes. And wow. uh, we discussed that. Uh, we discuss how he had information that he vouched not to release until hmm. the given time, and, and he didn't. And the importance of his, you know, uh, maintaining his credibility, and why he held a lot of this information back. Uh, so we'll hear about that. And it, of course, it is important for a journalist. Often, even myself, especially in the entertainment world, uh, am given interviews or information and asked to embargo that information. Uh, until a given time whenever, you know, their marketing strategy is to have some sort of information released. And so um, so it's something in journalism do. That's how you gain integrity. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. George Knapp, just to speak about him a bit for those who are not aware of, of his entire history, um, he's an award-winning journalist. And by that, I mean he's he's gotten something like over a dozen Emmys. He's won a Peabody, um, an Edward R. Murrow Award. Um, He's done uh, for decades stories on the paranormal and UFOs. He really is responsible for putting Area 51 on the map. Uh, Mm -hmm. KLAS in Las Vegas, the station he works for, has been reporting on Area 51. I think, you know, I've done a, a few stories on this since the get-go. They by far were on top of Area 51. But nobody really knew about Area 51, and it certainly wasn't a household name until the late 80s when George started interviewing Bob Lazar, who alleged to work at Area 51. Of course, that story went gangbusters, and now everybody knows Area 51. At the time that I took the Kardashians to Area 51... It was both the most famous and the most secret base, unacknowledged at the time, at the same time, which is so weird. And then, actually, later that year, 2013, uh, they finally admitted to Area 51's existence. So, now, let me ask you this. Would mm-hmm. they, does the government have another name for it, and it's us that's, you know, on the outside, calling it Area 51? Yes, there are, but what in particular, I think it's essentially just the proving grounds, but uh, what actual name they use it's not for sure but Mm. there are different areas on this proving ground and the main area where this base is is area 51 that's why it's called area 51 so it is the that is an official designation um essentially Uh, Uh, when when mm -hmm. bob lazar was was talking about it 
way back when the SR4 S4. do I have that right S4 was he did he actually mention that ahead of um ahead of that coming out as well Yeah he did mention that he worked at a secret underground facility outside of Papoose Lake uh which is actually south of Area 51 in and a section he called S4 uh, which is kind of an issue because there are different sections and there are S sections. But now that we have official maps of the area, S4 is not where um, Bob Lazar said it was. And the roads he said he allegedly drove on to get out there are not visible on any maps or uh, even on satellite imagery. Mm. So I don't know. For me, that's kind of an issue as well. Yeah. But uh mm-hmm. George really feels, you know, there's, uh, although he feels there's some information that is not, does not hold up, such as Lazar's educational background, that mm-hmm. there is a lot that does hold up. And he says he even has insiders who can verify more who do not want to go on the record. George Knapp is one of my favorite uh, journalists in the world. He's, he's just a very yeah. good journalist, really good at putting information together and, uh, and mm-hmm. very credible. So, yes. um, I, and, and many people feel that way. So another couple of things, I do have a couple interviews. So I, I think I mentioned this before, but Den of Geek has finally released there. So last weekend I was able to go to a special private screening and George and I talk about this a bit in Las Vegas of the skin hunt for the skinwalker documentary that just came out last week. And um, Den of Geek finally just posted those videos that I did of George and Jeremy and uh, an article I wrote on all of it. But um, on the video, at least which one? The Jeremy one um, for Open Minds, the video I did for Open Minds uh, of my interview of Jeremy at that. uh, I also did a little pro tip for ufologists. And you can watch the video because I'm there at McCarran Airport. Or airport in Vegas, and I was just telling people essentially how where you can go to take pictures and um, of the Janet airplanes, the unmarked airplanes that take people to Area Fifty One. Oh, oh wow! Yeah, and I have a couple of my pictures of them in that video as well. Don't they take a bus too to get there to the airplane? I think they do take buses, but for the most part, they fly. Oh, a bus to the airplane? No, yeah, I think they drive. Like Oh, okay. I thought I saw a clip where they were there were buses and then they would get off and get on the unmarked airplane or something. Yeah, maybe. I thought they drove to the the airport, but maybe not. Yeah. Probably though. So that on my Patreon site that I've talked to you about, if you go look Alejandro on Patreon, I have links to all of these and one more thing before we move on. Uh I was at this Devil Tower UFO rendezvous this past weekend. With, um, let's see, Mark D'Antonio, Karen, um, Dave, David Marler, Lee Spiegel, Richard Beckwith, Micah Hanks, uh, KGRA was there uh, with, uh, you know, Rick Hobbs and all the guys. And then um, Chris O'Brien was a speaker as well. And uh, so I have a couple behind the scenes videos that I did on my Facebook Live or on the Open Minds Facebook Live. You can also find links to those on the Patreon and so those are a lot of fun. They're just us being goofballs as usual. And uh, oh. also part of the panel uh, that was going on during the first night. And um, I also have uh, 
Uh, oh, videos that I recorded. These are really cool. They turned out really nice, so I can't wait to get these out. But I've up where we're staying, we have this beautiful view of the Devil's Tower. Mm. So I got interviews of most of the speakers with the tower in the background. Wow. So they look really cool. And we talk about uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the movie that made Devil's Tower, you know, really famous for UFOs and aliens. And then we mm. also talk about kind of modern ufology and how things are going right now. Are there a lot of other rock formations similar to that in that area? No. Really? Not so at it all. it really stands out. It wow. does. It really stands out. It's strange. It's odd. It's very different than everything else in the area. So it's really cool. And uh, essentially a big volcano uh, is responsible, which makes sense. I mean, areas where there are very large volcanoes, there's no typically no other very large volcano next to it, especially in the United States uh, or in the continental United States. Um, Hawaii, of course, is tons of volcanoes all over. But um, so so that explains why it's it's so strange sitting there all by itself. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll maybe post some close-up pictures and stuff. I know I did last year. You can find on my Facebook. But uh, it is something to visit. It is really something to yeah. see. I recommend everybody see it. And uh, if you do go see it, you can stay in Hewlett at the Best Western there where they hold the UFO rendezvous and talk UFOs with the owners there. And it's a beautiful place, beautiful town, Hewlett. Wow. Amazing. Yep. Very cool. So that's everything that we'll be talking about. That is uh, getting everybody up to speed on what we've been up to at Open Minds. But I guess let's go ahead and talk some UFO news. Well, um, this, this story... <laughs> this story is uh, the reason I think this is kind of interesting uh, on space.com, a uh, great website and a lot of um, a lot of uh, space news on there all the time, uh, ranging from the rover to you name it, anything going on in astronomy and astrophysics. Great, great website. Well, they're talking about a movie now. I just watched the trailer and um, I I can't wait to watch it. It's downloadable now. The simple name of the movie is called. UFO. That's it. So, um, what space.com is talking about <laughs> in this about this movie is it says UFO movie delves into the math of the universe navigation. And um, so they show the trailer, of course. And in the movie, it's uh, Gillian Anderson, of course, from the X Files. And she stars as a mathematics professor. And uh, the other lead is uh, Alex Sharp as a college student. And uh, he uh, has a UFO sighting as a, as a child. And it kind of goes through. Um, everyone is at an airport, I believe. Uh, I really suggest to watch the trailer. And you'll get hooked, too, because I can't wait to watch it. Um, so um, he has a sighting. And basically what he does is he figures out some math and figures out that they're coming back. Um, and, but the math is, really has a lot to it. Uh, basically, space.com says the fine structure constant relates to the strength of the electromagnetic force between elementary particles. Research has at times suggested that this constant might vary uh, across the universe, so space travelers could use it to triangulate their location. The char- characters discuss um, um, how they do this, 
And the process could work similarly to a pulsar navigation, uh, how that would work. And in the method, the navigators would observe the regular pulsing neutron stars to figure out their own locations. Anyway, it's all due to math. I know that's kind of a little um, geeky there, but it's all, all has to do um, with math, which uh, kind of explains it out in the, in the movie. It's a thriller, too. And uh, uh, again, just watch the clip. It's from Sony's Sony Pictures. And uh, you watch the clip. The government's involved. They're hiding. Um, they're wondering. The kid is the college kid's wondering why the government is still there after they have this sighting, and they just called it a drone. So why is all the government agents still there? And that's what really got him into you know researching what was going on. Anyway, I I can't wait to watch it, and I, I, it looks like a really good movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I haven't heard a lot about it. Uh, I haven't even watched a trailer. I mean, I've seen that Gillian Anderson's in it, and I've read uh, about the movie, so it looks really cool um, so far, even though I haven't watched the trailer and stuff. But uh, And then I know Ryan Sprague interviewed somebody involved with the the movie, I think. But um, Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's cool to hear more about it from you. Yeah, yeah. So let's see, what else news? One thing that people kept asking about is this solar observatory stuff. and. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a little frustrating, and I told people this on, on the live stream that I was doing, and, and I'll say it again. It's just that, you know, people, and I know a, a lot of listeners already understand this, but whenever something odd in the world happens, which is nearly every day, there are many people who jump on this UFO connection type of thing, and... You know, especially the people making a bunch of money, the biggest charlatans, to put it quite frankly, uh, jump on it immediately. And then they start doing uh, Facebook Live and YouTube Live videos with all these wild, ridiculous claims. And I don't understand why they have such huge audiences when they're proven wrong pretty much every single time. But I guess they spin it in a manner in which they, they, uh, you know, oh, they're just not telling you the truth type of stuff. But... So could you tell exactly what happened that they were spinning? Yeah, essentially what happened, which is true. I mean, it was genuinely a mysterious event in that the FBI came in. They Oh, uh, yes. Now I know what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. Uh, they asked everybody to leave uh, a nearby post office. They also um, uh, had people leave. And so they evacuated these two places. And, and a few residents too, right? Um, I'm not sure about residents, to be honest. I think, I, think I saw that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe, uh, and that would make sense because of what I'm getting into. And at the time, and this was in New Mexico, at the time, even the sheriff was getting upset because he's like, you know, they're not telling us what the hell's going on here. Um, what it turns out it is it was a security issue. They've let people back, and they haven't given all the details yet, but it looks like... Uh, there were threats. So uh, it was either a bomb threat for the um, observatory and or the post office. And that's why they evacuated people for their protection. Mm. Wow. So and then people have gone out and said, oh, look, there's six or seven other cameras that are down. Well, you know what? There are thousands, literally thousands of live webcams at observatories around the world. In fact, our great friend Mark D'Antonio, who was there at the Devil's Tower, um, he does his own live stream uh, videos uh, from his, you know, uh, observatory that he's got in his backyard. So 
uh, it's easy to go find some that are, are not working or down at the time. And he and others have made a great point that if this had anything to do with the UFO event, that um, you you can't, you wouldn't take down one observatory because all the observatories can observe the same thing. Um, right. In fact, Ma- Mark made a really good point that if something to, were to really happen, what they would do is send an agent or two uh, and essentially tell them, okay, well, let's uh, tell people there is a prosaic answer to this mysterious anomalous information you found, not close anything down, but then uh, move on and nobody would know the the wiser. So for instance, let's say they uh, got a video of some large craft near the sun or they caught something on their telescope. The best thing for the FBI to do or, or anybody who wanted to squash this would come in and say, okay, here's what we're going to tell the public, that it was just something prosaic, and then now, and you'll funnel the rest of the information you get on this to us privately. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense, because everybody would say, oh, okay, they know what it is, and move on, and it wouldn't be some... But closing down everything, you know, just makes everybody think that there's some kind of... But uh, the local observatory and stuff had some funny quotes. Let's see, where is it? This one's kind of cool. He said... Uh, the university professor who leads operations at the telescope says, um, it was the first time I've had to deny contact with aliens and death by solar storm and underground tunnels and new communications via x-rays all at one time. <laughs> so not only did the UFO people, but the uh, people you know who think the world's going to end and, and a bunch yeah. of other conspiracy people had all kinds of conspiracy theories related wow. to it. Wow, something, huh? Yeah, funny, funny stuff. So, yeah, I wouldn't worry about the observatory, um, you know. and But I would worry about these people who, you know, as soon as something happens, are saying that they have all this inside information, that there's some kind of... Yeah, I'm kind of curious to know who that is, but of course, we won't mention names, but... Mm-hmm. And, you uh, know, yeah. people like George Knapp, I know even, and others were took note, and it's like, wow, this is kind of weird, we need to look into this. And that's kind of the right attitude, saying, hey, this yeah. is kind of weird, we need to look into it, and then look into it to discover what's going on, as opposed to making um, bombastic claims right off the bat. Yeah. Yes, craziness. I guess. Well, we've got a couple of minutes. Let uh, let's see what else was out there. Um, as far as news, I know that uh, solar wraithing was was creating a lot of concern for people. But otherwise, I guess just uh, the Skinwalker movie is now out, and what's great is it's getting a lot of publicity. And uh, what I like about it, some people are complaining, "Oh, there's nothing new in it." Well, I would argue that there's new stuff that I had seen that I was not aware of, and I doubt there... I mean, there's not many have done more interviews with these guys than I have on this topic, so mm-hmm. I don't know where these people are, how they already knew about some of this, but even if that is the case, we haven't seen pictures and videos of where all this stuff took place to the extent right. of what's in the movie, and um, even if it's sharing what we do already know... In this new format, that's important because it's getting to a new group of people. That's right. I like. Uh, I, I watched the movie, and I like the part where George uh, is put on a chair, like two or three hundred yards away from everyone else, in the middle of the night in the dark, 
And he says, uh, uh, I was on the edge of my seat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we miss- talk about that too. a little. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. We, we cover that a little bit in this interview, but yeah, it's covered in the documentary, but that is great how they used him for bait to... <laughs> they did, yeah. Lure some paranormal. Funny. That and is nothing, really cool. Well, no, I don't want to do a spoiler alert. Never mind. And I'm yeah. sure, at least your opinion, did you learn something new? Um, well, like you said, it was really good to see the ranch. You know, I read the book, and then you get to actually see the physical ranch where things took place. So I just think it 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 was, you know, just for me, that was uh, worth it, you know, to watch the movie. But, I mean, you didn't know they used George Knapp for bait. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, so there are a few other stories like that that I didn't know either, so it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So check it out, but we'll be uh, talking to George right after this break, but before we do, I want to thank you, Martin, for joining us once again. You're very welcome, always. We've got more coming up with George Knapp right after this break. If you're listening on KGRA, you'll see some commercials. Please patronize some of these people to help KGRA uh, stay on the air. And then uh, for those of you listening to the podcast, you'll hear a short musical interlude. We'll be right back with George Knapp. Welcome back to Open Minds UFO Radio. I'm your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with George Knapp. Thank you so much for joining us. Always good to talk to you, Alejandro, and it was great to see you at our little secret secret soiree in Las Vegas last weekend. You're a traveling guy. (laughs) I am. I am all over the place. But when Jeremy let me know that you all were going to be screening the film... Uh, there was no way I was going to miss that, and uh, especially to see you all who were there, which was a lot of fun. Well, it was an interesting crowd. You'd have to admit there were some interesting faces in the mix. Yeah, definitely. Some of the whom names we can't share, but uh, that makes it even more fun and intriguing for the audience, I think. That's okay. You can say. <laughs> well, there's one you can't say, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that. So... Um, I guess to begin with is the the fact that really this uh, documentary was the format you wanted to share information about the ranch with in the first place. That's true. I mean, I started shooting video at the ranch late 90s. Uh, of course, I learned about the ranch around the time the rest of the world did in 1996. There were a couple of newspaper articles that came out about the weird happenings at the property, mostly focused on UFO activity. And, of course, the Uinta Basin already had a reputation well-earned of as being a UFO hotspot for as long as people have lived there. So uh, when Bob Bigelow and his team went to the ranch, bought the place, set up shop, put installed detection equipment and cameras and a team of scientists on the property, I got to learn little bits and pieces about what was going on under the condition that I not talk about it until they gave me the okay to go forward. In uh, around 1999, I finally got my first visit to the property and then started going back uh, periodically with photographers. Matt Adams uh, has been my most frequent collaborator on the property, and we were shooting video for what I hoped would one day be a documentary project, maybe more than one. Oh, after a couple of years of making these visits, though, Bob Bigelow was concerned. He sort of changed his mind about the direction I was taking, he was concerned that if we came out with a film, the place might be overrun by UFO enthusiasts and other kinds of paranormal researchers. And in fact, it turned out he was right. 
So I put the documentary on hold, at least uh, in plans of any kind of distribution. But I continued to visit the property over the years, different a couple times a year, at least once a year, and would always bring a photographer and uh, record what I could. And when we couldn't go on the ranch itself, uh, which you know, in particular during the, the bass uh, period, which we will talk about, I would interview other people in the basin, uh, talk to witnesses, uh, got to know some of the Utes and uh, some of the longtime residents and continued to collect information. And, and I didn't know if it would ever come out. I really didn't know if it would ever uh, bear fruit because, uh, you know, once, once Bob Bigelow gave me the okay column and I to come out with a book, there was no turning back. I mean, we did our best. We used different names for the rancher family because Nids had made that promise to him. We didn't identify the location. We didn't use any photos. But, of course, people figured it out and started flocking to the property anyway, and it caused a lot of problems. I think Mr. Bigelow regretted uh, ever allowing the book to go forward. In fact, I know he did. And, again, I, I still had the uh, made the promise to him that I wouldn't go forward with the footage, and so I didn't. Uh, there were tiny little bits of it that I used in public presentations a couple of times, but that was that was it, the little, little tiny slivers. And then when the property was sold in 2016, it occurred to me maybe, you know, I, I don't want to cause problems for the new owner, but maybe there's a chance that uh, I could move forward with this. And the new owner said yes, and Jeremy had been, Jeremy Corbell had been bugging me about it. Can <laughs> I see your Skinwalker stuff? And so that's how it came together. Mm-hmm. When it came to the book, um, the book was a pretty big hit. I mean, it sold well, everybody. It got the word uh, about Skinwalker out there. Uh, were you all, including Bigelow, maybe not expecting the book to be as popular as it was? No, I, I thought it would be pretty popular because it, it carved a, a new niche in the field. You know, there was no place quite like yeah. it. And, and there was certainly has never been a study quite like that. I mean, it, it is the most intensively studied paranormal hotspot ever. You never had a team of scientists uh, on the ground, boots on the ground, doing that kind of research. Now, I know there are a lot of criticism, criticisms of the study, and justifiably so, but there is no template for it. There is no, you know, um, sort of a guidebook to follow for something like this because there just aren't any places like it. You know, Hestalen is a, is a long-standing study, but it's mostly looking at lights in the sky, not the kinds of things that the NIDS team had to deal with. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, Mr. Bigelow probably regrets ever allowing it to go forward, uh, but I knew it would be a hit. Uh, and, you know, and a hit is a relative term because that book, although it sold well compared to other paranormal books, it never really pierced uh, the veil into the larger public. Um, and mm-hmm. that's that's what we were hoping to do with the film is to attract a larger audience beyond the UFO paranormal field to, even if it seems sort of rudimentary, to bring people along step by step on, on how this story unfolded. Um, we wanted to try to appeal to a much broader audience. Mm-hmm. I wonder, uh, you know, it sounds like you really sympathize with uh, Bob Bigelow's, uh, you know, concerns with people coming to the ranch. However, you're a journalist, and, and I'm sure that you're also, you know, you have this compulsion to share information. So how did you feel about it? Uh, you probably understood his concern, but at the same time, of course, wanted to share information. Well, first and foremost, I made a promise to him. I mean, that's a, that's. I, I know there are other journalists who operate differently, but look, I, this was a long-term study. There was no hurry. There was no reason to sprint. Of course, I wanted to tell the story, and I would bug him and bug Column about it periodically ever ever 
since I started learning what was going on there and saying, look, uh, you know, we need to tell the world about this. Uh, eventually, Bob came to the conclusion himself, uh, and co- I think at the urging of Colum, that after a period where this activity went underground, the skinwalker, whatever you want to call it, this intelligence that's there, it didn't want to be hunted, and it, it, it made its, its mm. intentions very clear in very dramatic ways, and it just uh, took its ball and wanted to go home, and when that happened, my arguments that maybe the world should know about it became more persuasive. And Bob Bigelow figured, look, if I let you tell some of the story, maybe people will come forward with other hot spots that we could go study. So I wrote a series of newspaper articles in 2003, which means I kept my word for those seven years, didn't say anything to anyone about Skinwalker. And then I did a couple of newspaper articles, and bam, they went all over the world. And after that, it became a little easier. The cat was out of the bag. It became easier to convince Bob to let us do the book, again, without any photos and specific information about the location and, and without really identifying the ranch family either. And so the book came out. And, and, of course, he was right, though. I mean, as soon as the book came out, the place was overrun. I mean, not just the locals who would go out there on Friday night and take their girlfriend and have a little scare fest or uh, the UFO hunters who would really get obnoxious and go up to the property in the middle of the night flash bulbs into the windows of the house, or the vandals who would rip off the fence posts and steal things, uh, or, or others who would go out there and have beer parties or whatever, really caused some problems. And I remember being with Bob, um, having a conversation about that, and he, I said, look, I'll volunteer. I'll go there. I'll camp out. I'll chase people away. I'll be security. And he said, no, we'll do something else. So we flew on his jet. We took his chief of security. Went out there on a particular weekend, and I he, he had a bunch of equipment on me, and I was in this camo gear and had a like a million candle power spotlight, and I was stationed at the front gate, and his security guy was positioned at the back gate, and we were chasing people off. And I I wasn't there 10 minutes at the front gate when the first truck full of people came up, and wow. I thought they, were, they saw me sitting in the bushes in this lawn chair. I thought they had noticed me, so I jumped up. They were coasting down the road. They turned off their lights and turned off the engine, just coasted right up to the gate. I jumped out with this million candle power spotlight and turned it on. And, man, you could hear them shriek. They fire up this truck and peel up backwards down the, the road. And I figure by the time that story gets told online, it'll be a nine-foot-tall Bigfoot with a laser beam attacking <laughs> yeah. the <laughs> Right. It'll be Gort, like the big alien from yeah. that. That's but, really funny. But after that, uh, Bob could see he had a problem, so that was when he started to have round-the-clock security, and he had teams from mm-hmm. Bigelow Aerospace who would rotate in and out for 10-day shifts. And a lot of those guys, if not most of those guys, had, had their own dramatic experiences, and some of them, as tough as they are, ex-cops, ex-commando, ex-military police, that kind of people, they wouldn't go back. No, they wouldn't mm-hmm. go back. So, and one of the reasons I'm curious about this is because I kind of put myself in your shoes. If I was in that situation, would I feel guilty? Uh, and I wonder if you did at all. I, now, personally, I feel like getting the information out is so important that uh, it would justify it in my mind. Um, did you have a tinge of guilt? A little bit, but I have to. I'll have to admit to something even worse: is that I, I got a little vicarious thrill out of being able to know stuff that nobody else knew. Oh and yeah. It, it of course you've had. I'm sure you've had this mental conversation with yourself, Alejandro. What if somebody came to you and said, "We'll let you in, but you can't tell anybody." 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's a tough decision to make. Now, I, I didn't have any that kind of an agreement. My agreement was I couldn't tell anybody until they gave me the green light. These were people that I had known for a long time that I trusted, and I wanted them to trust me, and I wanted it to get around that other people can trust me. I'm in the information business. I want people in that particular yeah. field and others uh, who work in on those topics and in sensitive positions to feel that they could trust me, and it's worked out pretty well. I mean, it's mm-hmm. worked out pretty well. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm the same, and I think that's why I get let in on a lot of things, because I'm, of course, very careful about sharing information when they ask me not to. But I think you'll find this interesting, is that the only time I've been in this situation was with MUFON with the Bigelow Project, because yeah. they asked us to sign non-disclosures, and at the time I was representing MUFON as far as PR. So I said no. I said it's better, I feel, for myself if I don't know because then if you don't tell me what I'm not supposed to share, I won't accidentally share it if, I, if, if somebody's asking me questions. Um, and little did I know, you know, likely, you know, this was during the time that Bigelow was working with the government um, doing investigations. Yeah. Um, I, I know how you feel. I mean, it's uh, as journalists, uh, we have to, you know, sort of figure out whether we're crossing a line. I didn't, I never felt I crossed the line. Because the promise I had made, I kept, and I never revealed information. I knew someday I'd be able to report it, and I wasn't in a hurry because this was a long-term study, a long-term project, and because they didn't have any conclusions. There was no uh, impending timeline, no no, uh, critical point at which we needed to go forward with something. And Bigelow kept his word when he finally gave me the green light. Uh, I was allowed to report it all. There was no restriction that I couldn't report anything about NIDS. Um, now, there were, it becomes more complicated a little bit later, but I'm sure we're going to get into that. Yes, we will. Uh, before we get into that, though, another fun story that you told us uh, the other day was how you were used as bait, um, that you didn't have um, your own experiences, but uh, you were put in a situation where you possibly could have. So, Wondering if you could share that story. That would have been 1991, I think. So it was the first time I went to the ranch with a photographer to start shooting on the documentary. And so I'd been hearing about the property for five or six years at that point, um, about the, the kinds of experiences that had happened both to the rancher family and to the NIDS personnel who've been on the ranch for a long time at, by that point. And there was some spooky stuff. Now, UFOs, wow, yeah, I'd love to see a UFO. The orbs that they were talking about, yep, would love to see those. I'm not really <laughs> crazy about seeing a cattle uh, mutilated uh, in front of me. There was a, a, a story about a giant cloud, a dark cloud, that sort of took over the mind of a, uh, a physicist, and we can get into that a little bit later, and that was kind of spooky. The eight-foot-tall, nine-foot-tall creature that crawled out of the wormhole-looking tunnel, that was kind of spooky. And then the, in the middle homestead, which is where most of the really weirdest and most disturbing stuff happened. There had been a visitor to the property when the uh, rancher family, the Gormans, will call them, uh, had still been there before Niz was there, and he was said he was drawn to the property, big Grizzly Adams-type dude, drawn to the property, didn't know what it was. He wanted to meditate, and the rancher led him out into the pasture. He and his son said, all right, fine. You can spend a couple of minutes. We'll take you out in the middle homestead. And they went off to the side and kind of kept an eye on the guy, chuckling to themselves, and he was there in the field for a couple of minutes, his um, his head to the sky, his eyes closed, his arms um, lifted up and his palms to the, to the sky as well. And they, they hear this cowbell 
off in the distance, and the rancher realizes, hey, you know what? I don't have any cowbells on my cows. And then they see this thing moving through the trees. It's like Predator, like in the movie Predator, a camouflage, uh, opaque, sort of a critter, large, moving through the trees. It comes out of the trees. It goes right at this Grizzly Adams dude. The rancher's just about to warn him, warn him that something was happening, and this creature gets right up to the guy and roars, and it's a roar like a lion roar. You can hear it a mile away. This guy just about craps his pants. He jumps backwards, falls on the ground. This thing, whatever it was, in camo uh, mode, goes back into the trees and disappears, and the rancher comes rushing over, and they the guy was petrified. The rancher had to pry himself off this guy. They let him off uh, at the front gate, and he left screaming, yelling, this is Satan, it's the devil, it's evil. Uh, and they, they kind of laughed about it, except they didn't know what that creature was. Well, that is the spot where they took me to be used as bait. So we're out there the first night that I had spent on the, on the property, and we tried to do all the things that had historically attracted the attention of whatever it is. Uh, the arrival of strangers would be one thing that would do it. Um, we made ourselves, our presence known in multiple ways. We built a fire out on the middle homestead and, and, and did interviews and made a bunch of noise, made our presence obvious, and then we dug in the ground. We got an earth mover and dug in the ground just to move things around because that had been the most effective way to get the attention of whatever ever is there, at least during the time that Nids was there. So we did all that stuff, and then Colin says, I get an idea. Let's put you on a chair in the middle homestead, and we'll leave you there and see what happens. So they hooked up like a couple of a microphone and a, and a Geiger counter and a couple of other things, put me on this little white plastic chair in the middle homestead where the predator thing had come out, where the black cloud, cloud creature had come out, and they left me there and went a couple hundred yards away with cameras and telephoto lenses to watch to see if something came to get me. You know, and I, I told the story in the, in the film that, um, you know, I, I was trying to be brave and everything, but I couldn't quite get it out of my head that there were some bad stuff that had happened out there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't mind seeing UFOs, a couple of other things, but I really didn't want to run into Predator and have it roar at me like that. But nothing came to get me other than mosquitoes. However, you know, a lot of people haven't been so lucky. I, I think... I think it is an interactive quality. We can get into this later if you want, but whatever it is that's there, it kind of sizes you up. Um, the people who have had the worst experiences are those who've had a very cavalier attitude or defiant attitude or confrontational. Uh, the people who bring guns, for example, and are going to take this on, I'm not afraid of anything, that commando, a gung-ho kind of attitude, those are the ones who have really, really had some bad experiences that extend beyond the ranch. Um, so, yeah, I was bait. I didn't like it, and I don't really want to do it again. That's interesting what you said just there about how the attitude has uh, may have an effect. What was your attitude, I guess? What was your mindset as you went through this? Um, do you think you maybe had a more of a respect for what happened uh, with taking place? Absolutely. I mean, Colm had prepared me. You know, he had told me uh, that he always makes mental preparations when he's going to the ranch. He would always do it, even though when he was going there all the time, is that he sort of girds his loins in a mental sense, is that it is a respectful attitude. We're here to learn kind of a thing. You show us what you got if you want to show it to us, but I'm not going to push the uh, the idea. Now, the result for me has been I've never seen anything. I mean, I've never seen anything dramatic anyway. I, I've seen some lights on one of the trips that Jeremy and Matt Adams and I made. Um, in the middle homestead that we couldn't really explain. They weren't natural, electric, uh, not a natural source that we know of and not 
electronic in any way. It's not gear that was there. And, you know, there's other tiny little things that have happened uh, during my visits, but nothing anywhere close to the kinds of things that we described in the book. So I don't know why that is. It frustrates me greatly because I don't know if anyone else uh, who's gone as many times as I have who has not seen something or has not had an experience, but I haven't. I, I hope that I have conveyed to whatever it is that I am respectful and maybe it'll show me at some point when I'm worthy. Uh, but I'm kind of glad that some of the things that have happened to other people have not happened to me. And yeah, the people who have gone in with a bad attitude are the ones who've had the worst experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do want to get into, because like you said, there, there are we all interested in this field want to experience something or see that. You know, what we're we're looking into is, is a real phenomenon. But like you said, some of this is kind of scary, and I was wondering if you could share the story of the, the black cloud that, um, you know, affected the researcher. That was, uh, I, I don't have the exact date in front of me. I think it was 97 um, when uh, Colin Kelleher and another of the NID staffers, a Ph.D. guy, a brilliant guy, are walking again with Middle Homestead. They had two dogs with them. They would use dogs as sort of biosensors. The dogs would often give them advanced warning when something weird was going on that they either smelled or, or sensed or could see in the dark. And they're walking in the Middle Homestead, and suddenly the, both of the dogs go behind the legs of the two researchers who are walking through the field. And they're huddling there and kind of shaking. They're scared by something. And these two scientists look up in the trees, and one of them notices what looks like a black cloud moving and the treetop level and it starts getting bigger and bigger and it gets into the middle of the trees right in front of them and suddenly the 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 one scientist the second scientist is frozen and out of him comes a voice and it's not his voice and it's speaking i'm trying to remember the exact words because there are a couple of experiences similar to this uh to to happen to other people but it's something the effect of we are watching you we're watching you and you're not really welcome here and the this guy is speaking this stuff and within a couple of minutes, he sort of bounces out of it. He was in a trance. It had taken over his brain. And he bounces out of it. He was disoriented uh, for a while. Uh, when they went back to the trailer uh, to spend the night, he had terrible nightmares and dreams. And it stuck with him, I guess, for a couple of days. But that, was, that really happened. And if you can you know, make guesses about who it happened to, uh, I'm not going to say it either way. But, I mean, that's a guy who's worked for major think tanks and labs and the U.S. military, and he's a brilliant guy, and he didn't make it up. Oh, it's, uh, mm-hmm. um, that, was, um, that was one disturbing experience, but some of the other ones that happened later were worse. Um, I mentioned about these commando types. This happened during the Bass period, and I don't know if it's too soon to get into that or, or you want to wait. But. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we've got a, a couple of minutes before the break, so I think we have time to introduce that. In that, there were several stages of the investigation. So if I'm wrong, uh, and you could correct me, but it began with uh, Bigelow and his National Institute of Discovery Sciences, uh, correct? Yes. Uh, Bob Bigelow funded that study. He created NIDS. He paid for the scientists. He hired them. He hired vets and trackers, and uh, physicists, and biologists, and a lot of other folks. And then he had people like Dr. John Alexander, who were part of the team, visited the property, and and then a science advisory board as well. They would uh, fly up, they'd stay for days at a time, fly back, and uh, they had hired local people as well, former cops, 
They had connections with the Ute tribe. That was all funded by Bob Bigelow, and that continued through about 2003 when uh, I was allowed to write the, the first articles. The, the activity had gone underground. There wasn't enough uh, for the team to do. There was, weren't enough uh, paranormal incidents. So basically they gave up. I mean, the, the, the phenomena had hmm. made it clear that it was not going to cooperate. It had destroyed some cameras. It was just not playing ball. So that's when they uh, uh, stopped uh, basically with the study. So, and, it, and then after that, after the book came out in 05, then they had personnel on the property, security personnel, but not scientists anymore. There just wasn't enough to do, and NIDS went away. So for a couple of years, it was basically fallow. And then in 2007, a guy from the DIA reached out to Bob Bigelow and said, I just read this book about Skinwalker Ranch. I'm really interested in it. Can I go? And Bob Bigelow said, yeah, fly to Las Vegas. I'll take you out there. They did. The guy uh, sort of got the idea that what is associated with UFOs might actually be a much broader uh, perspective of paranormal phenomena, that UFOs are, are not in an, an end to the, themselves, that it represents the tip of the iceberg. And he wanted to take a look. And he wasn't there five minutes, and he had an experience. And it was wow. to be tailored just for him. It was in an angle inside a building, inside the home there, that he this thing appeared to him. And he was trying to play it cool and not let everybody else know it was there. Well, let's hold this for a second. We've got to go to break. So we'll be right back. For those of you listening on KGRA, go hear a commercial break. For the rest of you, go hear a short musical interlude. And then we'll be right back into this uh, incredible story from George Nash. Welcome back. You're listening to Open Mind UFO Radio. I'm your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I, we are here with George Knapp. And I mean, what you shared just now, I, I was not aware of. And this is really fascinating is that, you know, uh, this guy from the DIA in 2007, right, came um, to the visit the ranch. And you were explaining he had his own kind of customized paranormal experience. Yeah, this guy had, he's a very serious rock-solid, brilliant guy who had read the book and was thought there might be something there of interest to the DIA and the Pentagon and national security. So he arranged, he called up Bigelow, said, can we go? Bigelow uh, had him fly out to Las Vegas. They flew to the ranch, and this guy had his experience within five minutes of getting on the property. He's in the main ranch house hearing some stories from the caretakers who live there, and this thing appeared inside the house in broad daylight, and I'm not going to get into details about what it was, but it was pretty distinct and remarkable, and it made a very big impression on this guy. So he leaves, he tells Bigelow about it later, and he goes back to Washington, 
and he looked up Harry Reid, and the, who at the time was the Senate Majority Leader. They'd had some interactions on national security issues already. Told him about his experience and said, we need to study this. That place is unique. And Reid went to some of his colleagues, the, the story that I've told on the air a couple of times, in the, uh, some of his colleagues in the Senate. He made the argument that UFOs deserve to be studied that there could be direct national security implications, that by ignoring them, it didn't go, make them go away. It just made them more enigmatic, and they agreed. So they um, set up a program that initially was OSAP. Um, it was separate from ATIP, the program that Lou Elizondo was involved with. Uh, he wasn't involved with it, actually, for another year, but um, ATIP was the study of occasional encounters that military personnel had with UFOs. And it was an informal organization that existed within the Pentagon, different departments and, and different divisions of the, the military, and they would exchange information. Videos would come in, they'd do analysis and create files and try to figure this stuff out. OSAP was created to be something else entirely. It was to look at a much broader range of paranormal activity. The DIA guy and Bob Bigelow and Colin Kelleher and everyone associated with NIDS knew that UFOs do, in fact, occur in connection with other strange stuff. That as much as ufologists don't like to admit it, there's a Bigfoot connection, and there is a crop circle connection, and there's a connection to animal mutilations. It's not clear what the connections were other than proximity in the same time and place of all those different phenomena. And here you had a ranch where all of this stuff was going on, and it, that ranch, whatever is there, had, in essence, given that guy from the DIA an engraved invitation to come back, and he did. And so the study was launched. Uh, the big uh, Harry Reid secured the funding. They put out bids uh, on the military websites for other contractors to submit bids. I only know of one other entity that tried to compete for the contract. Bigelow created BASS, uh, Bigelow Advanced Aerospace Systems, uh, and that was a separate organization housed within Bigelow Aerospace that uh, got the contract and launched this study, and it's an amazing study. A big part of the focus was the ranch. That's not the only part of the focus. I mean, they cast a very wide net, had teams uh, collecting information from all over the world, uh, from foreign governments. Um, they had teams that were zipping around. As you mentioned earlier in the program, they uh, arranged to have a, a, an arrangement with MUFON, and I'm sure they may have had arrangements with other UFO organizations and researchers as well. Bob Bigelow, a week after he signed the contract um, for Bass uh, to deal with OSAP, he came on Coast to Coast with me, and he dropped some really big hints to anyone who was paying attention. He basically said it. He dropped great big glowing breadcrumbs about what he was up to. <laughs> he said, look, I've um, launched this new organization. It's going to cast a very wide net, study UFOs and related phenomena, and I have an unnamed partner. I have a partner in this. I can't tell you who it is, but uh, they're providing financial support, and and everybody just kind of ignored that. But there it was. Uh, great. That's big, really yeah. funny. Yeah. And that's what's really weird about this is is reflecting upon that time. And uh, you've had me on coast when we talked a little bit about this uh, before. But you know, now that you mention it, I remember that interview. And I knew, because I didn't sign the NDA, but I knew there was a some sort of partnership that, that I was not going to be able to disclose, and that's why I didn't want to know. But I was like, I don't want to know, I don't want to know. So that was my attitude at the time. 
But you're right. Uh, nobody caught on. And that's what's one interesting thing about all this is that all of us are looking for the government program that's looking into UFOs or, or out there. And none of us knew. I mean, at least in the UFO community, even some of the people who work with Bigelow, nobody knew about this uh, relationship. Well, I did. And again, yeah. it's the same thing. Uh, the same deal is that I'm allowed to know about it. I just can't talk about it. And I suppose right. if OSAP had still existed, if somebody hadn't sabotaged it and taken the money away, it would still be ongoing. I wish it were because they did some amazing things. You know, the, the world isn't going to know about it for a while. And I don't know when uh, or if that information will come out, but they did some really amazing things and it was definitely making progress. And, uh, it's a terrible shame that it went away. But if they were continuing to do the work that they were doing during that time period, I wouldn't be here talking about it. I would still be right. uh, keeping my word. I, and I kept my word for almost 10 years until, mm-hmm. you know, the, the story came out. And as I, I've mentioned before, is that uh, you know, when the New York Times, when I'm told late last year, the New York Times is on this, they're going to break this story, I, I was sort of miffed about it. I said, well, why don't I get to break the story? I'm the guy who's kept this secret for nine or ten years. I, I, you know, I'm not a paid employee of Bigelow. I have no financial relationship with Bigelow. I know people snipe at that all the time, but that is not the case. I didn't work for him, and I didn't sign an NDA. But my word was my bond, and so I kept it. And I wanted to do the story. I don't want the New York Times to break it. I want to break it. And they had mm-hmm. to sort of kind of gently... Uh, let me know in a non-offensive way that I am not the New York Times. Well, of course I know that. I, you know, I, I knew that, um, I knew that the New York Times would, was a much better idea. There was some risk. They had told people if anybody else leaks this story, if it breaks somewhere else, we're not going to go with it. We'll bury it. And that, that would have been a bad thing because the New York Times mm-hmm. covering it, front page story, changes the whole media environment. It, it meant that the Washington Post then covered it. And Fox News has been doing ongoing coverage and many other news outlets who otherwise wouldn't come near it suddenly took it seriously. And suddenly it's not as it's not as crazy to be considering that UFOs deserve to be studied. And so Mm -hmm. I'm glad I made the decision and I I figured, well, New York Times will have some of it, but they're not going to have all of it because I'm not saying I know more about UFOs than any journalist. And I certainly do not believe that. But I knew more than any journalist about this particular program, and I knew that I'd be able to have plenty of stories that I could break on my own, and I did. Mm -hmm. Right. You have been, and I'm sure you will continue to. And one of the stories that you broke was was along the lines of what you had just explained, but I just want to kind of get back to for a second, is uh, you broke the story that Harry Reid had heard from this third party. Uh, about, you know, all of these things, and that's what inspired him to um, fund and champion this OSAP program. But there's been a lot of assumption that, you know, Reed and Bigelow were friends and that Bigelow had relayed uh, what he was up to. Did Bigelow tell him, as far as you know, anything about the ranch before uh, Reed heard from this other person in the DIA? Yes. Um, yes, but it wasn't lobbying. Bigelow wasn't lobbying Harry Reid for a program. Uh, mm-hmm. Harry Reid actually represented Robert Bigelow when they were both young men in a legal matter involving the, the deaths of uh, Bob's grandparents. Uh, but they mm-hmm. lost contact. They didn't stay in contact until 
uh, Miz was created. And I, I had remained in contact with Harry Reid. I always had a good relationship with him, even though I did stories that whacked him around now and then because I'm a journalist and he was Nevada's senior senator. So um, I knew he had an interest in UFOs because in 1989, after I first met with Bob Lazar and started digging into Area 51, Harry Reid was the first person I went to tell about it outside of our newsroom. I thought, wow. somebody's got to know about this. I want to see if he's aware of this because he had, you know, he had been a supporter uh, of Nellis Air Force Base. I, I knew he had an interest in Area 51, not UFOs so much, but national security programs out there. And I told him about it. We were in a limo on the way to the airport as he was flying back to Washington. He says, hmm, that's really interesting. He didn't kick me out of the car. So <laughs> after that, we maintained a dialogue, a sort of secret back-channel dialogue about UFOs. I would send him things from time to time that I thought would interest him, and he would send me stuff. The uh, Congressional Research Service had prepared a report for members of Congress on the UFO issue. It had never, I'd never seen it. It had never been made public. It has since been made public, but he shared that with me, and then I would fly back to Washington, or he would come out to Las Vegas, and whenever I would see him, whatever the topic was, the official topic or the reason for it, we would go off to the side and have a separate conversation about UFO matters. And uh, it drove his staff crazy because he wouldn't tell them what I was, what we were talking about, and it it alarmed them. And I wouldn't tell them what we were talking about, and they used to ask too. And then in '95, after uh, Bigelow had set up NIDS, I told Harry Reid about it. I said, "Look, this this science advisory board is pretty amazing." I had been allowed to sit in on a couple of meetings. I interacted with the staff. I even made a presentation to them one time about the the Russia UFO files that I brought back. It's an amazing group of people, PhDs all around, brilliant people, many of which uh, whom did not want their names used. There were two astronauts. I mean, you can guess who one of them was, Edgar Mitchell, uh, Hal Putoff, and Kit Green, and John Alexander, and um, people like that who were, you know, willing to put their reputations uh, and their careers on the line to investigate this stuff. So I told Reed about it. He said, you think I could get in to uh, sit in on some of those? I said, I'm sure you could. So he did. I don't know how many of those meetings he sat in on, but there were a couple. And then it sort of went away. I mean, NIS went on its way. Harry reads back to Washington. And there was no real ongoing contact uh, between them. Occasionally, Bob Bigelow would donate to Harry Reid's re-election campaigns, which now, you know, people looking to nitpick and, and to somehow destroy the credibility of the story, I can tell you they're full of baloney. Bob Bigelow was a businessman operating in Las Vegas, Harry Reid was the senior senator and the most powerful Nevadan ever elected sent to Washington. Yes, Bob Bigelow did donate money to Harry Reid's campaign. Small, tiny amounts compared to the size of uh, the uh, modern election campaigns. But still, it's enough that somebody, if they want to denigrate the whole relationship, they can point to it and say, aha, it's a quid pro quo. Well, that's baloney. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. In 2007, so there had been periodic contact. And Bigelow and Reed both respected each other and both understood that their mutual interests. But uh, Reed had read the Skinwalker book. He was intrigued by it. I think he had had some conversations with Bob about it. Uh, so he was aware of the ranch. But until that DIA guy came to him, there had been no proposal from anyone for any kind of federally funded, Pentagon-funded research program involving Bigelow Aerospace. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when it comes to OSAP, an- another thing that you broke a story you broke uh and i always tell people you know if you want the latest breaking on all of this you got to go to klas and the i team um but 
is how and why it ended because I think uh, and I, that's a really interesting story as well. Well, it is, and the full thing has not been told, and I I'm not sure I can tell part of it because I already have uh, have shared with you some of the details, but um, there's it's it's a multi-level uh, bit of intrigue and how the Pentagon works and how contracts work. In essence, though, opposition grew to the OSAP program. It was interacting with Elizondo and ATIP. There was exchange of information back and forth. Um, and, you know, those, those two programs were separate for a while, but they were cooperative. And it alarmed some people in the, prog- in the Pentagon who, in particular, there's a cabal in there Nick Redfern had written about him. I forget what his name for him was. I don't think that's the real name, but they're basically high-level people in different intelligence agencies who are fundamentalist Christians who think that anything involving UFOs and the paranormal is satanic, that by studying it, we invite Satan into this world, and they wanted it killed for those reasons. Now, I know how that sounds. I'm not belittling anybody's religious beliefs, but, man, that, that kind of a decision-making... You know, deciding to kill a program that's doing good work because Satan might be involved. That's, I'm I'm not, I don't feel better about the Pentagon when I hear that, but it's true. Now, there were other factors involved. There was political intrigue there at the Pentagon. Somebody sees a pile of money that they consider vulnerable, they will go after it just for other reasons. And so the money was pulled out from under it. I'll tell you this Bob Bigelow continued to fund it for a year on his own. Out of his own pocket. He had, I think it was 50, uh, it, might, it might have been as many as 90 employees at one time, but at least 50 of these were serious staff member investigator types who were boots on the ground, co- collecting files, investigating reports, really doing solid research. In addition to that, you had Hal Putoff um, sort of uh, overseeing uh, the creation writing of scientific papers. And several of those have now gone public. I made the list public uh, earlier this year the full list and their authors, and that uh, was some solid work that was well-received in aerospace circles and industry circles and at the Pentagon. People who saw those papers thought, wow, this is great. It's looking down the road 50 years to what science and engineering and aerospace could be and space travel. Exciting stuff, but it got, it got yanked. Bigelow continued to fund it for a year, fought his damnedest to keep it alive, but it, in the end it got sunk, and um, it, it's a shame. It's a shame. And then whatever was left of OSAP sort of merged back into ATIP. So the New York Times breaks the story in December. They are true. There was a program called ATIP. It did study UFOs. But the $22 million didn't go to ATIP. It went to OSAP. It went to Bigelow Aerospace. Mm-hmm. And some other intrigue, which I think I find interesting, and there's so much, because it is complicated, about this story that people don't seem to get. But I, I have confirmed this. With Isaac Kane, and she she did uh, let me know it's okay to say, but the New York Times had other sources than Elizondo or To the Stars or some of the uh, other um, fast people. And I don't think people, I think everybody assumes that it was uh, Bigelow and his group that gave her that information for the New York Times story. But there's more political intrigue in that there's other sources we're not aware of. That's true. I mean, the primary instigator of that whole thing, the New York Times story, is Tom DeLong. I know uh, that drives some people crazy, but the fact is he deserves credit for what he did. 
he put together uh, this group of people, and uh, they developed the plan, and he sold it. And, um, you know, one way to get it off the ground, I mean, by creating the organization to the stars, he gave Lou Elizondo a place to go. If Lou Elizondo mm-hmm. didn't have a place to go, he might have stayed in the Pentagon and wallowed there, and we would never have seen this stuff. Now, Lou did start the process forward on a number of videos being released, and he went by the book. Um, there's a paper trail, and I've seen it, uh, for at least for the first three. I remember the first time I met Lou was two days after he stepped on stage with Tom, in Seattle, and then he, after that, he came to Las Vegas, and I got to have dinner with him, he and Tom and, and Mr. B, and um, he had those videos. Are there, are there more? Oh, yeah, there's more. Uh, there, it's in the process. So I think after he left, whoever was left over was ticked off that he had made this stuff public, and he had a lot of people who were really mad at him who were right. surprised when he made that announcement. I think they, they may have turned off the spigot. So I don't know if we'll ever see more videos. But he, he at least started the process. But the fact is, uh, ETSA, DeLong and his crew, are the ones who got the attention of the New York Times, showed them enough information to verify what they had heard from other sources. And I think they probably would have shared those videos, except the New York Times got them on their own. They got them from somewhere else. And right. that is why, to the consternation, I think, of Tom and his crew, New York Times breaks the story, and they don't even give Tom DeLong or TGSA a mention. They don't give them any credit at all. But, you know, at the time, they were launching their organization. They wanted to raise money. They, mm-hmm. they wanted a higher profile, and they kind of got burned by it. I think they yeah. created some bad feelings. Leslie Kane did amazing work. I mean, she was the rock on that story in shepherding it because, you know, she's not a, a staff member of the New York Times, but she knew more about UFOs than anyone who was there. Mm-hmm. And I think if she had had her way... They would have written more stories, but after they made the big splash, they didn't. They stopped. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I so agree with Tom DeLong getting, needing to be recognized, and, and I certainly have been at an angle with everything that I've done, including my talk outs here. But we're running out of time, so I guess uh, to pull it back and to get intrigue into this documentary, um, which is, I mean, how do I feel that this documentary is very important, and I'm sure you do too, because finally uh, it's, the information is getting out in the format which you had hoped it get out um, at the beginning, and it seems to be doing well. Yeah, it, uh, it was doing really well. I didn't check today, but I know in the first day that it went public, it was, it was for a time the number one documentary on iTunes, number one in the world. And I, I think the last word I heard from Jeremy Corbell, the director, it uh, it was on iTunes number 18, not documentaries, all films on iTunes. The top wow. 100 films in the world, it was number 18, which is a pretty amazing thing. I mean, um, and it's just getting started. It's only been out for two days. And so there's a bigger audience that, uh, you know, the UFO people and the paranormal people have been waiting to see it for a long time. So they're the ones who jumped on it. But there's a whole big audience out there that is wondering, what the heck is this Skinwalker thing that popped up on this list? And I think... I think there's a chance we could finally reach the broader audience that needs to be aware of this. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to, it may be too rudimentary and too basic for some UFO poobahs, but the fact is this is not meant for them. It's meant for a much bigger audience that I wanted to, um, you know, to engage and to realize these issues involve all of us. I'm not talking about some alien invasion or something, but the, the nature of reality and understanding our place in the universe and our spot in the food chain 
we need to think about this stuff, and I, I think we made a breakthrough. I am frustrated because after 18 years or so of trips out there, there's a lot of stuff to report, and we had to leave so much out, you know, um, of mm-hmm. the original material as well as new things that we've shot that Jeremy and Matt and I have, have collected and witnesses we've interviewed and fairly recent phenomena, including the, the new owner and his team. There's a lot to tell. So I, I'm hoping that it is successful enough that we can tell it more. And I'd like to include the stories of some of the, the individual researchers who have been drawn to that place on their own and have had their own adventures. And I know we're taking a lot of shots from ufologists who, for one reason or another, are ticked off to be on the outside looking in. But too bad. That's the way it goes. Right. I mean, I, I feel that way, too, in that uh, you could be excited about great information coming out or you could be upset because you're not involved, which is, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It, it's frustrating to hear those people uh, have these, these issues. But I guess my last question will be um, to that larger population that seems to be out there, larger than I think many of us suspect that uh, is out there and has a stronger influence than we um, maybe would have expected. And what I mean is the religious faction, uh, the people who have concerns that we're, you know, dealing with demons. Uh, what would you say to people who, who said, you know, maybe they should have shut that down? I kind of agree with those people. How would you argue that uh, your point with them? Well, here's the, here are the facts. Uh you know, people can dispute uh, lights in the sky or, uh, you know, uh, mistaken identification of uh, different phenomena. And we know that 95% of UFO cases, for example, are probably explainable. But the fact is, our government has now confirmed. There's no question about it. These are real. They're from somewhere else. They're not ours. And if we don't figure it out, somebody else can figure it out. So even if you're not interested in the cosmic questions of who are they, How do they relate to us? What's their interest? Why are they here? How do we fit into this? Even if you don't relate to that, which I can't imagine any human being who would not, there's national security issues to consider. Um, There's sometimes direct personal safety issues to consider. These things are physical. Uh, They've demonstrated a physical reality. They take different forms, different shapes, different times. It's real, and we need to figure it out. If the Russians or Chinese figure it out, you can bet that they will exploit it. And I think maybe that they have made progress. Harry Reid thinks they've made progress. And Lou Elizondo believes that there are programs. I believe and have been told that during the Bath study, there were foreign governments in the U.N. Basin that were sniffing around. I wanted to know what was going on out there. Now, that's serious. So when somebody uses mumbo-jumbo and spooky uh, stories and religious beliefs to uh, put the kibosh on a scientific study or a legitimate inquiry... That's troublesome. You know what? Maybe it is Satan. Maybe it's demons. I don't know what it is. Interdimensional travel, extra-dimensional people, time travelers, all of the above. Uh, or crypto-terrestrials or ultra-terrestrials. I don't know. But we need to figure it out. If not for national security or personal safety, just for the sheer joy of discovery. And so... It's very bad national security policy to say we don't want to know about something. That makes no sense at all. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. We're out of time. This is absolutely fascinating. And uh, I am just so rooting for this film. I hope it goes 
very big, and uh, and I'm sure that you're going to have some more stories to break regarding all of this in the near future. Oh, I think there's a pretty good chance of that. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alejandro. See you later. Thank you so much to George Knapp for being on the show. I thought that was some pretty amazing information. So I'm really happy that George was able to join me. That gets to be hard to do. He's such a busy, busy, busy person. And, you know, like me, you know, especially him, he's he's busy all day. Output, output, output is what he's thinking. He's got to get new stories, new information to get out. And that keeps him really busy. And that's what we want him to be doing. So... Um, he's out there getting out so much information and so happy he could take the time to share some of these great stories with us. Martin and I talked about a lot of news at the beginning of the show. And of course, you can get that at openminds.tv. Also, of course, we've got lots of great products at uh, ufocongress.com. So check that out. And soon here, we'll have more information about uh, the upcoming event coming up in a year now. So that's going to be a ton of fun. And it's going to be probably, well, I say this every year, but every year we have some really cool stuff. So we're going to have some really, really cool stuff at the Congress. But uh, also when it comes to the t-shirts, a lot of those t-shirts are selling out because we only have limited amounts. So everything's going very quickly. Luckily, we have merchandise that's cooler than what we've had in the past, I think, or at least more of it. And so people are buying it up. So if there's a favorite design you have, be sure and go to the website and get that. Uh, Don't rest on your laurels. But you can also email us too and let us know if there's one you like that's not in stock. And we can let you know if we're planning on on doing that design again. Otherwise, uh, Open Minds, the YouTube page, we've got lots of really cool updated stuff there. So, of course, we have our live streams that are happening every Thursday evening. I'm also posting these podcasts up on YouTube. And we'll have these great interviews from the Devil's Tower with the Devil's Tower in the background of David Marler, Mark D'Antonio, Lee Spiegel, um, myself, and Micah Hanks. So, Lots of cool topics, and, and that's going to be a lot of fun, too, so keep an eye on that. And you can go to my Patreon, like I talked about before, and keep up to speed on everything I'm doing. So not just my open mind stuff, but Den of Geek and anything else that may be coming out. So thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for uh, thank you to Martin Willis of Podcast UFO for joining us with the news Thank you for Systematics for doing the bumper music. And thank you to Micah's brother, Caleb, for doing the awesome open and close music. Sometimes people say, where can I get that cool music, man? Well, if you go to Open Minds Radio page, you'll have a link to where you can go download that. He makes it mostly available for free. You can actually find him uh, via the Clerk Chronicles on Patreon as well. And you can donate to him and find more material there. So Caleb's extremely talented but um finally thank you to you the listeners for being here once again we'll have another great show next week until next time adios muchachos